In this episode, we're going to look at an example deployment workflow for syncing static website files from a local directory to a remote S3 bucket. Back in part two of this series, we created the websiteinthecloud.com S3 bucket, which acts as the foundation for our two static hosting environments. But this diagram is missing an important piece of the puzzle, that being the workflow for pushing content into an S3 bucket on a large scale. I've put together a few diagrams, which I think will help describe the workflow where we can kind of reverse engineer the process at a high level. So on the far right, we have our websiteinthecloud.com S3 bucket, which we configured in the last episode. Then let's say we have roughly 50 static website files sitting on our local machine that we'd like to push into this S3 bucket. For the example website we're going to upload today, I've downloaded a free one-page bootstrap theme from Blacktie. If you haven't seen it before, Bootstrap is a really popular website framework which greatly speeds up web design. There's tons of free themes out there, you just need to Google for them. For this theme, there is something like 10 nested directories, 40 plus files, mostly CSS style sheets, JavaScript, and some HTML. So how do we go about getting this downloaded bootstrap theme into S3? Sure, you could use the S3 management console to upload these files manually, but this will quickly become a major pain point as you're constantly going to be creating directories, uploading files, creating more directories, uploading more files, and generally babysitting the upload process. There must be a better way, right? Well, this is where the S3 website package comes into play, as it allows you to sync files from your local computer into an S3 bucket, very similar to rsync, but for S3. Let's jump over to the S3 website project page on GitHub. So S3 website is a very active open source project with very extensive documentation along with many example use cases. But at its heart, S3 website simply allows you to sync folders from a local directory into a remote S3 bucket. Later in this episode, we're going to look at a live demo of getting S3 website installed, configured, and actually pushing our example bootstrap themed site into the websiteinnercloud.com S3 bucket. The goal is to give you a really good idea of how we can automate content uploads to S3 without babysitting the process too much. While doing research for this episode, I found that many people are using a tool called Jekyll to generate static website content from a dynamic blog and then push it to GitHub or S3. I don't want to spend too much time talking about this, as it will be highly dependent on your requirements, but I thought it would be worth mentioning. For the demo today, we're going to use a bootstrap theme as the basis for our example site. But say you wanted to dump an existing dynamic blog into static files. Well, Jekyll allows you to do just that. Basically, Jekyll creates a markdown version of your site with its own folder structure. Then you can just use a command to export your static site for upload. The reason you use these intermediary markdown files is that you don't need to work with HTML directly. Markdown is an easy to read and write plain text syntax. You can generate these Jekyll markdown files by using the dynamic blog import tool called Jekyll import. There's about 20 plus plugins for all different types of blog platforms too. I've included an intro to Jekyll YouTube video link in the episode notes below, and it does a great job of explaining what Jekyll is from the ground up. So the workflow to go from a dynamic blog to a static site would look something like this. Use Jekyll import to dump a dynamic version of your site into markdown files. From Jekyll, you convert these markdown files into a static version of your site. Then you use S3 website to upload these static files into S3. This might look complex, but it's actually only a couple of commands and you can automate it rather quickly. But why would you want to convert a dynamic blog into a static format and upload it to S3? Well, there's a whole host of reasons like reduced cost of running a virtual machine, performance gains of serving static content, and security. Security is actually a huge one. 
Blog software is an extremely big target, and there's often bots crawling the internet just looking for vulnerable sites, sometimes within 24 hours of a bug being found. So if you're running a static site, performance is typically better, there's reduced ops overhead, and you don't really need to worry about getting hacked as easily. Just to complete the picture here, in the following two episodes, we're going to configure CloudFront to pull files from this S3 bucket, then we're going to attach our website in the cloud.com domain to this CloudFront distribution. This slide pretty much sums up what this series is about by giving you a high-level overview of the end-to-end -end workflow and how files from your system are ultimately delivered to the end users. But for this episode, we're only going to focus on using S3 website to sync static content from our local system into a remote S3 bucket. If there's demand, I can do something on Jekyll too, but for this series, it's a little out of scope. Hopefully my explanation wasn't a little too overboard with these diagrams and workflow examples. I'd just like to set the stage with an example problem and then we can solve it. Okay, so now that we know what we're trying to do and why we're trying to do it, let's go and do it. We can start by jumping back over to the S3 website page. If we scroll down just below the what S3 website can do section, there are instructions on how to get S3 website installed, then we can walk through getting it all configured. To install S3 website, we just need to run gem install S3 website. You will need to have Ruby and Java already installed on your machine, so if you don't have these, you'll need to figure that out first. Down here, we can walk through what the configuration process looks like. First, we need to create AWS API keys with sufficient permissions to access our websiteinthecloud.com S3 bucket. I'll talk more about this in a minute though, as it plays well into an AWS best practice. Next, we can create a directory for our static site using S3 website config create to generate a config file called s3website.yaml. And then we can update this config file with our AWS API credentials we created earlier. Don't worry about this too much as it'll all become obvious when we actually do it. What's cool about S3 website is you can actually use it to create the S3 bucket for you, but we've already done that in the previous episode as I like to do things manually first before we go and automate them. Finally, when we have everything created, you can just type S3 website push and the S3 website package will read the config file, access AWS via our API key and upload our static website files. What's cool about this is that S3 website figures out what needs to be synced in that it does a diff of what is currently in the S3 bucket versus your local static site directory, only pushing out the changes. This reduces tons of manual work into a single command, along with being quite efficient, both in terms of upload speed and bandwidth used. Let's circle back to this create API credentials task for a minute, where we create new credentials and put them into the s3website.yaml config file. If you're new to AWS, I just wanted to chat about a couple best practices that will totally save your butt in the event things go bad. The first best practice is to create dedicated role accounts for each tool, then lock those accounts down to the bare minimum permissions needed. In this episode, our S3 website tool only needs access to a specific S3 bucket, websiteinthecloud.com. So I've created a dedicated role account and it can only access this single bucket. Just like on a Unix system, how you wouldn't give root access to Apache, MySQL, regular users, or create shared accounts, the same goes for AWS. Your default AWS credentials can do anything on your account. It's pretty much like using root on a Unix system, in that you can launch tons of virtual machines, chew through mountains of storage, or delete pretty much anything tied to your AWS account. There is actually a great AWS Identity and Access Management Best Practices Guide, which walks you through securing your AWS account, and in my opinion, it's a must read. Role accounts become extremely important from a security standpoint in that oftentimes you'll want to automate things via API calls or through the use of automation tools, just like S3 website. 
where we are embedding credentials into a config file, or many times an environment variable. Let's apply this to our S3 website automation tool for a minute. Say that we go through the trouble to create a role account, but we don't lock down permissions to this specific S3 bucket website in the cloud.com. Well, say we accidentally leak this API credential. Maybe we think we're checking this config file into a private repository and it's actually a public one. Or maybe we do it through a demo where someone looks at the config file and they see the key. If someone can actually get a hold of this API key, they can have free reign on your AWS account. It's just like giving someone root access to your system. I hate to dwell on this too much, but just about every month or so I read a story about how someone uploaded or otherwise leaked their unrestricted AWS account credentials, oftentimes while checking code into a public GitHub repository unknowingly. This goes unnoticed for a few days until they log into their AWS account and see a few hundred virtual machines all mining Bitcoin or something, never mind the $10,000 AWS bill they now have. I think it's obvious that you need to treat these API credentials with extreme care, but if one does leak out, make sure the account is limited in scope of what it can do. This is where this identity and access management best practice guide comes into play, as it walks you through all of this step by step. When these types of things happen, to AWS's credit, each and every story I've read, AWS credited the account and removed the huge billing charges. My intent is not to scare you off AWS, just that role accounts with least privileges assigned will greatly limit the scope of an already stressful security event. Luckily, it only takes a couple of minutes, and this best practice guide tells you pretty much everything you need to know. The second recommended best practice is that you configure billing alerts, especially since AWS is a pay-as-you-go service. The idea is that if you think your bill is going to cost $15 a month, then configure an alert for something slightly more, say 20 or 25 bucks a month. Say you're testing something and accidentally leave a large virtual machine running. Or maybe one of the sites that you look after is seeing a large download spike and it's chewing through tons of bandwidth. Or maybe there is a background process that's all of a sudden eating up lots of storage without you knowing. You can find a much larger bill than you expect when you log into AWS. A simple billing alert will give you a heads up before these types of big surprises. Again, this only takes a minute to configure, but it will save you tons of hassle and stress. So armed with these two best practices, limited role accounts, and billing alerts, you'll definitely be ahead of the game, and I really cannot recommend them enough. Okay, enough about AWS best practices and workflow diagrams, let's go ahead and set up S3 website. Off camera, I've created my role account for this episode. And there's a nice little guide here on the S3 documentation site, which gives you the policy to lock down this role account to a specific S3 bucket. Basically, this is a policy which you can assign to a role account that will limit its access to only a specific S3 bucket along with CloudFront. I'm not gonna show you how to create a role account for a reason as I think it makes sense to go through the guide because it's packed with helpful advice and I could spend probably an hour talking about it here. So let's jump over to the command line and get started. First, we're going to install S3 website by running gem install S3 website. Again, you'll need to have Ruby and Java installed as dependencies, but I already have them on my system. Next, we need to create a project directory for our static website content. I've already created one called E50 for episode 50. So let's change into it and list the contents. You can see this underscore site directory and the S3 website package by default looks for static content in here, but it's configurable. Let's run tree against this underscore site directory and you can see that there's a bunch of files and directories in here. This is that single bootstrap themed website we talked about earlier. You can actually download this underscore site directory in the episode notes below if you want to dig through it. So we have our project directory configured and the underscore site directory with our example static website. At this point, we can generate an S3 config file by running s3website config create. 
Then let's open up this S3 website config file in an editor to see what it looks like. Right away you can see where we need to put in our S3 ID, S3 secret, and S3 bucket strings. The first two, S3 ID and S3 secret, are the credentials that we created for this restricted role account. I'm just going to paste my values in here so that we can kind of see what it looks like. Whoops, I just leaked private API keys. Good thing these are just example values of what the real ones look like. My intention is just to show you how easy it would be to give a demo and leak keys. Or maybe you're checking in a larger project into a public repository and all of a sudden you leak your config file. You kind of get the idea. There are a bunch of settings in here that we can tweak, but for the most part the defaults are okay. But if you have any questions, just check out the S3 website GitHub page, as the documentation is actually pretty good. The one thing that you should fix is this S3 endpoint, which points to the data center where our bucket is physically housed. Luckily this is pretty easy to figure out, so let's head over to the AWS S3 management console for a second. If we select the S3 bucket properties, then over here on the right hand side you can see the region is US standard. But that doesn't really tell us the exact value that we need. Let's expand this static hosting option here, and you can see this endpoint link. Well, in this link, you can see S3 website, and just after it, you, we have this US East 1, and that's the value that we want. Depending on the region that you pick, there could be a wide range of values in here, but there's a good documentation page that can really help. As always, links can be found in the episode notes below, so don't worry about remembering this address or anything. So you can see here a listing of region-specific endpoints, which you can use for sending REST API calls to, just like with what we're doing with S3 website. And down here there's this long table of region names and then the region endpoint values. US East 1, US West 2, EU West 1. Okay, so armed with this US East 1 value, and yours might be different depending on the region that you picked, but again, you can just check it by going to the S3 management console and looking at the bucket endpoint link, and it'll tell you. So let's head back to the editor and we'll uncomment this S3 endpoint value. Now US East 1 is the default value here, but there's likely a good chance you didn't pick the same region as me, so I just wanted to make sure you didn't run into an error when we go and deploy the site. At this point we have pretty much everything configured. We have our role account API keys set up, specified the bucket to use along with the region S3 website should send commands to. So let's save this and head back to the command line. Actually wait a second, we should probably do a quick review of what the site looks like before so that we have something to compare with after we do our update. So let's head over to the S3 management console and just click that webcenterthecloud.com static hosting endpoint link. And you can see here we have a hello world testing123 website. So now that you know what this page looks like, let's head back to the command line and update this test page with our cool looking bootstrap themed site. Just for your information, I actually updated the API keys in the configuration file off camera because I obviously didn't want to leak them. Okay, so to push out the website, we just type S3 website push. As you can see, there's a bunch of output as we sync our local underscore site folder with the remote website in the cloud.com S3 bucket. And if you tried to do this via the S3 web interface, you'd likely quickly become unmanageable, especially if you wanted to sync changes, as it might not be obvious what needs to be uploaded. I think this plays well into our workflow diagram, in that with just a few minutes of work, we can now sync large amounts of data with just a single command, and there's no babysitting required. This would work really well via some automated method too. Say for example that you wanted to go the Jekyll route. You could have a little script that would dump the static content and then push it out via S3 website. Well, let's head over to the browser and check out what the final product looks like. I'm just going to hit refresh here. So we have our cool little header up here, a nice background image, and some text down here describing what the site is all about. Well, that's about it for this episode, and I hope you found it useful. In the next two parts, we'll cover connecting CloudFront to this S3 bucket, 
And then we'll wrap up the series by connecting the website in the cloud.com domain to our CloudFront distribution. All right, that concludes this episode. Thanks for watching. If you would like to get notified about future episodes, please subscribe to my mailing list. You can do this by going to the Get Notified link in the header and entering your email address. Have questions, comments, or concerns about this episode? What about episode ideas? I'd love to hear your feedback, either good or bad. Shoot me an email, justin at sysadmincasts.com.